just a quick reminder, we are starting our live workshops again. They'll be held at Fleming's in Sarasota starting on November 1st at 6.30 p.m. If you're interested in coming to see me talk about ways you can de-risk your retirement, feel free to give us a call, 941-951-0443, or shoot me an email, jeremy, J-E-R-E-M-Y, at wealthenjoyment.com. Sometimes an idea is just better in theory than in practice. One of those ideas, for instance, to me at least, is cryptocurrency. The idea of cryptocurrency is that it will replace our money. It's going to be our money. It will replace money put out by governments for this decentralized idea and therefore be less subject to the whims of central banks. It's an interesting idea, and in theory, could make a lot of sense. We have more control over who owns what in the way of the currency and less worry that our money will become valueless because a central bank decides to put out a bunch of extra U.S. dollars that make the dollars we have in our accounts worth less. At the same time, we haven't seen it being used as money very much. For the most part, cryptocurrency is being used as a speculative investment. People buy it and hope it will go up in value. They're holding it. They're buying and selling it to make money and then converting that money back to U.S. dollars or the, the currency of whatever government they're living under. Well, if that's the case... Is this ever going to be used for the idea that it was created for? Maybe. The United States is talking about putting out its own cryptocurrency. So perhaps down the line, when other governments have their own cryptocurrency out there and you can choose between a government-backed cryptocurrency or Bitcoin or Ethereum or some of the other non-government-backed cryptocurrencies, and if there's a trade exchange between those, and they can be justified. Who knows? But right now, at least in practice, cryptocurrency isn't being used as money. In fact, one of the most well-known ways it's being used is as a way to leverage criminal transactions. I'm not saying that's the only way it's being used, but it certainly is a problematic way we're hearing about a lot, which is that when ransomware takes over your computer, that would be when Maybe you clicked on a link or downloaded something, whatever it might be, that downloaded something to your computer and your computer got closed off. Usually the criminals who take over your computer want to be paid in some form of cryptocurrency because it's less trackable, more easily moved, harder to get back if you, the authorities can even source where the transaction went. It's sometimes very hard to get all that cryptocurrency back. That's part of the value of having it be less attached to the government. It's a lot of privacy, but that privacy can protect pretty much anyone. Another problematic theory I read about recently, and this is something I specifically wanted to talk about today because I found it fascinating in theory, is this life cycle approach to planning, to financial planning. Let me set the stage by saying common thinking on financial planning states that when you're young, you should start saving your money for the future, even if it's only a little bit. So you start creating a habit of saving for the future, especially if you have, let's say, a 401k you can contribute to through your job. 
And even more so if that job is contributing money as well, if you put money in and they match it, let's say, there's no reason why you would want to give up on that free money. And everyone, for the most part, agrees that a young person should be taking advantage of that. And if they don't have that, possibly saving elsewhere in an IRA or even in a bank account, an investment account. New articles published about the life cycle approach take a counterintuitive idea, which is that young people shouldn't save. You heard me right. Young people, let's say in their 20s and early 30s, actually shouldn't save money for the future because they don't have that much of it to put away anyway. That money is more valuable to them to spend, maybe to go to a little nicer restaurant or to live in a little nicer place or whatever that might be. It's an interesting idea in theory because then they say, really, as you're starting to earn more and maybe you've reached a level of lifestyle you're pretty comfortable with and could set pretty comfortably for the next 30 years all the way through to retirement, that's when you should start putting every dollar above your lifestyle level, above the expenses to cover the way you're living, let's say at 35, you should just sustain that all the way through to 65 and every dollar that, that comes in that's above that subsistence level that you are comfortable with, you go ahead and put that into a future savings and you're putting more and more and more. It's instead of putting a, an average of 10 or 15% from when you're young all the way through to your retire, you put 0% in all the way to 35 and then starting at 35, it's every dollar earned above what you minimally need for your lifestyle. Well, that's kind of interesting. It would state that younger people shouldn't feel bad if they haven't started saving because actually they're doing the right thing. I will say I like that idea for young people who haven't so far started saving because it gives them hope that actually as long as you can get to a lifestyle you're comfortable with and then from there stop spending every dollar that comes in and be real disciplined about it, sure. That seems like a great idea. If at 35, you say, the way I'm living at 35 or 40 is all I'll ever need. That's exactly the way I want to live for the rest of my life. I never want to upgrade my lifestyle again. I'm going to put in every dollar that I earn from raises and bonuses and anything else that wouldn't be needed to cover my very current level, hopefully including inflation, into my expense level. That's all going to go to savings, and that should be more than enough to fund a retirement starting at 65 or 70 years old, whatever retirement uh, age you're currently aiming for. Again, in theory, this sounds really interesting. And a lot of math went into the paper that looked at this idea. But then you have to start really drilling down into that and realize in practice, what you have to do is somehow train every 20 to 30-year-old that feel free to spend every dollar coming in because you're doing the right thing all the way up to some specific age where that stops, 35, 40, some level. And from there, now you have to take every single dollar or most of your dollars above a certain income level and put it towards retirement going forward. You can't spend it for yourself. You can't buy a nicer house from there. You can't buy a nicer car from there. Your current lifestyle is your lifestyle. Congratulations. This is it. 
for the rest of your life. Now, of course, there'll be variance in that idea. Maybe if you get a huge raise or win the lottery or some amazing investment that really grosses you way ahead of your retirement goal, maybe you can juice up your lifestyle. But in practice, what you're really saying is for most people, I hope you have a lot of discipline to be able to not set any habits of saving when you're young and then add a huge habit of saving going forward, a real specific way. If we could put this lifestyle approach into our schools and train all of our kids going forward that this is exactly what you should do, okay, I could see that working. But other than that, I'm really not clear how we're supposed to make all of this work for our people going forward, for our, that in practice, it just seems like we're better learning to save early, even if the math doesn't quite work the way they're suggesting it should in this lifestyle model. And by the way, I'm not sure I agree with all the math they used, but even if their math is right and their ideas are right, it takes a lot of training and a lot of discipline to make that model work. And that is why I think you should take every model you hear about with a little bit of grain of salt, think through whether it's something you can actually apply in practice, not just in theory. While some ideas have yet to be proven to be practical, others are timeless. I recently had a client come into my office. Let's call him Bob. He and his wife, Susan, came in and we reviewed their financial plan. They had set up their retirement in such a way that they were pretty happy with the amount they'd saved and were pretty solid on the investments that they had in their portfolio. But they were curious about how much they could give to charity because they wanted to make sure they could support the charity they cared about, but not necessarily give too much away. And Susan also said to me candidly, Jeremy, I love the charity, but the other thing I'd like to do with the money is start to enjoy it a little more. I, I really wish we could travel a little more, maybe eat at nicer places. And I said to them, well, you've got plenty of money. Why don't you do that? Bob said, Jeremy, don't tell us to spend more. I really feel comfortable with our current level of spending. I don't want to accidentally spend all of our money. And it occurred to me that there was an idea that we might be able to set up for them that could meet all sorts of goals. Let me start by saying Bob hated taxes. He was always complaining about the taxes he had to pay. As I said earlier, they also cared about charity and they wanted some more income. I suggested they consider a charitable gift annuity. This is an idea where if you set it up, you can give some money to charity and when you die, the money will go to charity, but during your life, the charity promises to pay you an income stream for as long as you live. This seemed like a really good idea, especially because they'd get a tax deduction for a portion of this money as well. So Bob would get to save some money on taxes. They'd get some extra income on top of what their investments were generating, and they would also get to leave something to the charity they cared about. Well, we did the math and came up with a number they were comfortable with, and they'd already pretty well set out how much they wanted to leave to their daughter, so they weren't worried about this money going to the charity because they'd already planned on leaving it to the charity. A few months after we implemented a charitable gift annuity for them that paid them 5% a year on the money they put into it, they came up to me at a, 
a charitable event that I happened to be at with them and said, Jeremy, we are just loving this charitable gift annuity. We get these checks that come in every month and we actually can't spend them all. In fact, Susan said, Jeremy, we're going on a cruise to Asia. And for once, Bob was willing to upgrade our tickets to business class so I didn't have to scrunch into a middle seat. She was so excited because they were actually doing more with that money. Meanwhile, after they had walked off, the charitable officer came up to me, the plan giving officer. He said to me, Jeremy, you know, Bob and Susan, they started to give us more money. I said, well, that's interesting. I mean, they, I know they set up the charitable gift annuity. He said, no, they're actually just increased their annual gift too. They said they just have more money to give. What an interesting idea. It's been around forever, a charitable gift annuity. You get a tax deduction. You get income off your assets. You benefit charity. And it can be a real value to people who are looking for certain types of goals. If you're interested in hearing more about charitable gift annuities, feel free to give me a call, 941-951-0443. I am just such a huge Lord of the Rings fan. My entire family is... We went to Fellowship of the Ring when it came out, the movie, in Hawaii. We were in Hawaii on vacation, and we spent one of our few evenings in that magical location waiting in line to see that first Lord of the Rings movie. That's how much my family loves these movies. Well, I have been asked about this new show that came out, The Rings of Power, on Amazon. The season just ended, and... People have asked me my thoughts on it. I thought I'd share them with you in case it was something you were considering watching or just wanted to know, since I'm such a big fan of Lord of the Rings, what do I think about this new show? Let me start by saying I don't love every Lord of the Rings-related material. In fact, the three Hobbit movies that came out after the Lord of the Rings movies I thought were fine. If you've seen Lord of the Ring once, Lord of the Rings once, those three movies, and loved them, it's probably worth it to see the Hobbit movies because there are some great returning characters in them and some great notes and themes that are, you know, callbacks to Lord of the Rings, but they're just not quite as good. This show on Lord of, on Amazon Prime called The Rings of Power, Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power. I've watched the entire first season now, all eight episodes. And I liked it. I think I actually liked it better than the Hobbit movies. The one thing I will say is that it's a little bit more visceral than the Lord of the Rings or the Hobbit movies. It's got a little bit more in the way of violence and gore and just maybe even meanness than those movies had. I'm not sure I am as much on board with that. Nowhere near as much as Game of Thrones by any stretch of the imagination, but... I was surprised that they went as far as they did because I really like the idea that, you know, a 13-year-old can go see the PG-13 rated Lord of the Rings movies. If these were in theaters, I probably would slap an R rating on them. That's just me. Maybe the ratings agencies wouldn't agree with me, but that's where I came out on them. However, I generally enjoyed the show. I have questions like everyone. I think there were parts of the plot that were a little slow and unclear what they were trying to accomplish. They changed 
parts of the original material. Now, I will say the source material for this show, which is based in the second age of Middle-earth, thousands of years before the events of Lord of the Rings, so it's a prequel to Lord of the Rings by thousands of years, the material that that's based on, things like the Cimmerillion and some other Tolkien writings, were not as well-established stories. In fact, a lot of them were compiled posthumously to J.R.R. Tolkien's passing away. They're interesting, but they're not as compelling. They read more like a mythology than an interesting narrative to me when you read those stories. And changing that material with some artistic license for this show doesn't bother me that much. But I do think the show itself could still use some punching up when it comes to dialogue and the characters' motivations can seem one note. The main character is Galadriel, who was in the original trilogy, the original Lord of the Rings, as a very different sort of being, but thousands of years later in her life. So she's changed. She's grown by that point. She's younger and very, very full of vengeance in her heart in this. And that would be okay if you could still see more of the woman she was going to become. I just don't see that as much. I feel like she's very one note, and I don't like that. However, I really enjoy the relationship between Elrond and Durin, Elrond the elf and Durin the dwarf. It reminds me so much of Legolas and Gimli from The Lord of the Rings. That was my favorite relationship in the books and the movies was Legolas the elf and Gimli the dwarf. I just enjoyed them starting out as almost enemies and by the end being such close friends. In this, Elrond and Durin are already friends, but still that relationship, their dialogue, even from being different people with different goals, whose people need different things from them, the way they work together, the way they relate to each other, I think that's some of the best parts of this show. I actually got choked up a couple times watching that. I recommend it. I think it's pretty good. I, again, prepare yourself for a little more violence and a little bit more along the lines of darkness. But overall, I found the show to be pretty enjoyable, and I will be checking out season two. Let me know what you think. I'd love to hear from you. Feel free to comment, like, email me, call me. Happy to talk to you about anything I'm watching. And uh, let me know if you have enjoyed The Rings of Power. That's all for the podcast today. I want to thank my awesome producer, Megan Udell, who is also my awesome sister for taking such good care of this podcast and getting it up online for me, putting in those fun sound effects you guys hear. I also want to thank everyone at Udell Associates for supporting me as I started to put together this podcast. I hope you're enjoying it. I invite all of you to subscribe, like, comment. I have a YouTube channel you can check out if you want to hear more of me. Some of these segments in my podcast go up as video on my YouTube channel, but also I do some YouTube videos that aren't part of this podcast talking about other things if you're interested in that. We also have our book, Retire Happily Ever After. Bruce Udell, my father, and I wrote that together. If you're interested in reading our book, feel free to give us a call, 941-951-0443. Shoot us an email, jeremy at wealthenjoyment.com. I look forward to talking to you again soon when I'll have more oodles for your noodle.